Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices, and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. The Economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. We've long been telling you about Javier Malay, now Argentina's president, and his chainsaw approach to solving his country's economic crisis. Our correspondent says he should put down the power tools and instead take lessons from Peru's past plight. And when you think of the guillotine in France, you probably think of the French Revolution, but it was in use all the way until 1977. We reflect on the life of Robert Badinter, the justice minister responsible for the end to capital punishment in France. But first... I recently went down to Nogales, Arizona, which is a town right on the United States-Mexico border. And actually on the other side of the border, there is a town called Nogales in Mexico. Aaron Braun is The Economist's West Coast correspondent. And it looks like desert scrubland, there's mountains. And I went to a port of entry where cars are crisscrossing every single day. And there's a big green welcome to Mexico side. And when I got there, I met Veronica Gracia. She's a longtime officer for U.S. Customs and Border Protection, and she gave me a tour of the port. So you'll see the wall, the brown. That's the wall there. That white building over there that you see, that's Mexico. Those vehicles up there, the tower, that building, that's Mexico. The port of entry is really something to behold. It's about 12 lanes of traffic if you're coming across in a passenger car. If you're a pedestrian, you can walk across and flash your passport to officers. Everybody who comes in pedestrian-wise, mm-hmm. like this, these gentlemen here, okay, this they're is the coming from Mexico. Walkway. Yes. Bus will park here. And everybody will exit the bus. It's really busy. People crisscross constantly every single day. And it's people who are taking their kids to school. Officers go to the dentist on the Mexican side. They'll cross in the morning to drop off their kids or go to work. Come back if they're dropping off their kids. Then go back and pick them up in the afternoon. Or if they're working here, a lot of them come work, go eat, come back, and then go home after work. Can the lines get really long? Yes. That must be quite a day. 
The reason why I went to this particular port is because while people and goods cross every day, there's also more sinister things that cross the border. And I was there reporting on fentanyl, which is a synthetic opioid up to 50 times stronger than heroin. And so Veronica was walking me around explaining all of the different layers of security that they have that they try to use to essentially find and then eventually destroy fentanyl. Contraband team, you can see they have their mirror. Yeah. So he's checking vehicles if anything uh, pops out at him and he thinks that he needs to take a further look at. If an agent notices something, the car might go through an x-ray scanner, and there they're looking for any type of anomaly that means that they might want to search the car for something more sinister. There might be another officer with mirrors looking under your car for drugs. There might be a dog sniffing for cocaine or methamphetamine or fentanyl. So that white car has been sent to x-ray. So as soon as he gets the green light, he's going to go through it. So the car will will drive through it like a car wash? Yes. So you chose to visit Nogales in, in particular. I mean, what's the, the scale of the problem there? How much fentanyl is coming through that crossing? And, and what's the scale of the, the wider problem that merits all of these layers of security? Nogales in the border south of Tucson is now the main artery by which fentanyl comes into America. Fentanyl is not a new drug. America's Drug Enforcement Administration first noted an uptick in seizures of the stuff back in 2014, so it's been a decade. But if you look at the chart of how opioid overdose deaths in America has rocketed over the last few years, especially during the pandemic, that huge growth is because of the spread of fentanyl. Fentanyl and other synthetic opioids have killed about 75,000 Americans in the 12 months to September. It's killed more than 300,000 Americans since about 2013 when it started showing up. And it has just proven to be really, really tricky to fight in a way that previous drugs are not. Why is it that? Why is it such a tricky drug to fight? If you think about how America was fighting drugs in previous decades, like marijuana, like cocaine. It was smuggled into the country in pounds. You could deploy planes to burn marijuana fields. It was much easier to spot. Fentanyl is so potent and so tiny that it is very easy to hide in, for example, the tires of a car in a gear shaft. It's also very cheap. There's places in Los Angeles, for example, where I'm based, where you can get a fentanyl pill for less than a dollar. And so a lot of folks who were addicted to prescription opioids in the early 2000s and then had switched to heroin when it became very hard to find prescription pills, found it to be much cheaper than heroin, and so they switched to fentanyl. You talked a lot there about the the demand side, and I guess you were at the Mexico border because that's the supply side of the story. Yes, most finished fentanyl is coming across the border from tiny labs in Mexico, and it's not a lab like you would think of with a chemist and all kinds of fancy equipment. It could be as simple as like a guy in their basement. And that's why it's so hard to track these down and disconfigure them. It is very hard to keep this stuff out of the country. That's not to say that the government isn't 
trying. They're deploying new technologies like these x-ray scanners, and they want to scan ever more vehicles coming across. Seizures of fentanyl at the border almost doubled in 2023, but it's hard to know if seizures are up because these innovative strategies are really working or just more drugs are being trafficked. And my hunch is that it's probably a little bit of both. Now, this feels like a naive question because it's the kind that you would ask about previous epidemics of, of drugs that have got into America. But is there a way to simply stop the drug reaching the border in the first place? It's not a naive question. I think it's the question, actually, Jason. And the answer is that supply chains are just constantly shifting. These drug cartels are extremely innovative in the way that they think about their supply chains and how to get around American authorities. And so if we go back in time a little bit, finished fentanyl used to come to the United States directly from China. And the Trump administration put enough pressure on the Chinese that China banned finished fentanyl and a couple of chemicals used to make it. But then, of course, these transnational criminal organizations found a workaround. So instead of shipping fentanyl to the United States, precursor chemicals, which are used to make the drug, were shipped from China into Mexico. And so then we saw production happening in these labs in Mexico, and then it shipped north across the border. So if America doesn't have a firm grip on the forces outside its borders, what about what it can do at home? Are there policy levers to pull? There are. And for the first time during Joe Biden's presidency, more money is going towards treatment and prevention than to interdiction. So that's a huge change. One of the big things the Biden administration did was make methadone, which is a drug that reduces cravings and helps with withdrawal, easier to access. So is buprenorphine, which is also a way to treat opioid addiction. I talked to Raul Gupta about this. He's the director of the Office of National Drug Control Policy for the Biden administration. And he kind of explained to me the reasoning behind some of these changes. We've looked at the data and the research has shown that patients receiving take-home doses are so much more likely to remain in treatment and less likely to use illicit opioids, for instance, and that's life-saving. Another thing that the administration has made a priority is that it is making naloxone, which is an antidote for an opioid overdose, much easier to access. So now it can be sold over the counter at pharmacies. Some schools have begun to stock it. And Mr. Gupta told me all about that as well. That is, is also to make sure that naloxone is not treated any differently than a fire extinguisher or or a defibrillator device. These are are life-saving medications. We've seen examples after examples. What is clear from all of this is that the rest of the world should really be watching what's happening in fentanyl with America. Fentanyl is already common in Canada, which has been dealing with its own opioid epidemic for years. Its use is growing in northern Mexico along the borderlands. But I think the broader threat is from synthetic drugs as a whole. There's been a spike in deaths in Britain from a different kind of synthetic opioid. And drug cartels are always looking for new markets. So America's fentanyl crisis and the synthetic opioids crisis might not be confined to North America for long. Erin, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. Thank you. 
Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organisation better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. Argentina's return to economic crisis has been a serious one. Last year, inflation exceeded 100% for the first time since the bad old days of hyperinflation in the 1990s. As of January, it was more than 250%. Enter a new libertarian president, Javier Malay, and his radical solution. Give up on the peso altogether. He campaigned on simply getting rid of the currency and the central bank. The economy, he said, would be better served by the American dollar. All this and Mr. Malay's other burn-it-all-down campaign messages make him a welcome guest at certain gatherings abroad. Last weekend, he described his grand plans at the Conservative Political Action Conference in America, an annual gathering now mostly of Trump supporters. Make Argentina great again. Viva la libertad, carajo! <laughs> but rather than emulating Trumpian bombast, Mr. Millet might be better off looking a little closer to home. Mr. Millet could do a lot worse than to look at Peru, whose currency, the Sol, has been a beacon of stability for the last 20 years or more. Michael Reed is a writer at large for The Economist. Since 2016, Peru has had six presidents in eight years. It elected a hard-left president who then attempted a coup against the Congress, which failed, and he was ousted. Protests and their repression that followed that resulted in the killing of 50 people by the security forces. Politics is all over the place, but the currency is remarkably stable. How? How is that? Don't currency fluctuations often go with political instabilities? I think there are underlying reasons for the stability. And we have to go back to the late 1980s in Peru, when I happened to live there. There was hyperinflation. A government introduced a new currency called the Inti. But that didn't work. If you had any Intis, you immediately changed them into dollars. And there were streets in the center of Lima that were thronged with money changes. It was a whole kind of cottage industry. That inflation peaked at 2,800% in 1989. And then came the stabilization program of Mr. Fukimori. Tell me about him and his program. In 1990, Peru elected a new president, Alberto Fukimori. And he later went on to become an autocrat, shutting down the Congress and so on. But the first thing he did was implement a radical and successful program of economic stabilization and reform. The exchange rate was unified at a low rate 
against the dollar. The previous government has had multiple exchange rates, which meant that favoured importers got cheap dollars, which is what has happened in Argentina under the previous government. He removed overnight subsidies on fuel and utilities and so on, which was a big cause of inflation. And he opened up the economy to trade and foreign investment. After a couple of years, inflation came down into single figures and a process of export-led economic growth began, which lasted for almost all of the past 30 years. So hyperinflation was ultimately tamed. And as you say, the currency has been stable for absolutely years. Why? How did that, that program of reforms work? I think there were two really important factors that Argentina could copy. One is that the central bank has constitutional independence and it's been very well run. Investors, markets, Peruvians trust the central bank and trust its president, Julio Velarde, who's been there since 2006. The second factor, which is equally and perhaps even more important, is that Peru has seen an export boom. So dollars have been abundant and the central bank has accumulated a very large quantity of reserves. So the central bank has the reserves to intervene to just smooth volatility when the currency responds to events either abroad or within Peru, and markets know that it has those reserves, so they don't bet against it. But how to translate all of that into the situation in Argentina now? We've got Mr. Malay wanting to get rid of the peso, to dollarize the economy, to get rid of the central bank. The problem in Argentina is that Argentines simply don't trust the peso. And they don't trust the peso because the central bank has not been independent. It's printed money to finance the government, and that's debased the currency. And because Argentina has been a very protectionist country, and therefore it doesn't generate enough dollars. So the idea of dollarization, when your problem is a shortage of dollars, is ludicrous as a solution. It also attacks the symptom and not the cause when Mr. Malay says he wants to adopt the dollar and shut down the central bank. He could and should implement a stabilization program similar to that in Peru, which would be painful at first, but which would pretty quickly bring inflation down and promote economic growth. The problem is that in his first three months in office, He's continued with the kind of belligerence of the campaign trail, attacking the politicians in the Congress who he needs to pass the legislation to implement his program. So he's being immensely self-destructive, and that makes one wonder just how long he can last and where Argentina might be heading. Michael, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. What clothes do you wear to be killed in? What clothes do you wear to witness someone die? This is what was worrying Robert Badinter as he dressed on that cold, dank November morning in 1972. Catherine Nixie is a Britain correspondent for The Economist. It was 3am and he was going to La Sante prison to witness his client, Roger Bontum, be guillotined. It was ridiculous, really, to worry about clothes. They cut the collar off the condemned man's shirt anyway. It helped the blade to fall better. And yet, he hoped Bontem would get his own shirt back. To die in that hideous prison suit seemed somehow terrible. 
Paddington chose his own clothes with care too. A dark suit, a pale shirt, a plain tie. For a lawyer to witness his client be guillotined, a little politesse was surely necessary. Though by the end of that terrible morning, he felt he was no longer able to be called his client's lawyer. You cannot advocate for a corpse. Once your client has been sliced in two, you cease to be their lawyer, and you become instead what he called a man who remembers. That's all. Bannenter was being modest. From that day on and for the rest of his life, first as a lawyer, then as justice minister, then finally as France's moral conscience, he campaigned against the death penalty. And in France, successfully so. On October the 9th, 1981, France abolished it. The mort, c'est la justice qui tue. Je n'accepte pas une justice qui tue. Badinter had defeated the guillotine. He could never defeat the memories of that morning. For the rest of his life, he would remember the sound of the blade as it had fallen. Not with a swish or a hiss, but with a single, sharp crack. He had never expected to hear it when he took on the case. He had been certain that his client Bontem, a prisoner who was complicit in the murder of a warder and a nurse, but who had himself killed no one, would be acquitted. Badinter had been brought up by his Jewish father to love France and its justice system. His father had fled to France from revolutionary Russia, arriving in 1919 with little more than his book-learned French, a fondness for La Marseillaise, and a conviction that France was the finest country in the world. And for a time, for him, it was. Soon, he had a young bride and enough money to buy his young family a fancy new apartment in a fancy arrondissement. His son Robert could see the Eiffel Tower from his bedroom. His father had loved France with an intensity that no Frenchman could match, giving his sons French names and making them read 19th century novelists like Victor Hugo. His love didn't even waver when some Frenchmen started making terrible anti-Semitic speeches. Nor did it waver when his sons found graffiti, death to Jews, scrawled on the walls. This, he said, was just a false note. France was a wonderful country. When his father had applied for a form of French naturalisation, the official had asked him why he wanted it. He had said, because of my feelings towards France. They would arrest his father in February 1943. He died in the Sobibor extermination camp. Hatred was never so frightening as when it wore the mask of justice. Badinter had seen enough of hatred to know that. All men of his generation had and he always mistrusted the mob. As a teenager, he had watched two armed men drag a shorn, half-naked girl through the streets because she was a girl of the Germans. The men were despicable, but so too were the crowd. The mob would play a part in this case too. France wanted Bontem dead. A poll showed that most French supported the death penalty. But Badinter was not worried. The French mob might be angry, but like his father, he had faith in French justice. You could not kill a man who had not killed. He told Bontem he'd be pardoned. You have nothing to fear, he said. You will be pardoned, that's for sure. But clemency never came. And so, on that cold Tuesday morning, Badinter had set out to go to the prison in his well-chosen suit. The suit was ridiculous. But then, his client had worried about his own appearance, too. 
A few weeks before, Badinter had gone to visit his client in prison and had been struck by how well he looked. He mentioned it. Bontem replied that he did gymnastics to keep myself in shape. That remark had struck Badinter as terrible. The death penalty made everything ridiculous. On the morning of the execution, before Bontem was led away, he had asked for a moment to do some grooming. Then, ready for his beheading, he had carefully combed his hair. La guillotine herself had been not absurd but grotesque. Baninter had seen the scaffold as soon as he had walked into the prison courtyard on that dark morning. The sight had shocked him. He had expected his old enemy would be hidden away in some secluded courtyard. But there she was, in the open. He was not wholly surprised by his reaction to her. Like his father, he had adored Victor Hugo, the great abolitionist author. And Hugo had famously written that the guillotine was so sinister it felt almost animate that no one could look at the guillotine and remain neutral. He certainly had not. After the execution, and his client was cut in two, he had left La Sante swearing that he would fight the death penalty for the rest of his life. The opportunity to do so came quickly. In 1977, he took on a case in which a man had killed a young boy. Ostensibly, it was the man who was on trial. But Badinter turned it into a trial of the death penalty itself. Justice and the jury, were in the dock. The jury could sentence his client to death, he told them, but if they did, they should know that his death was on their hands. He had won that vote. On behalf of the French Republic, I have the honour to ask the National Assembly to abolish the death penalty in France. And then... A few years later, in 1981, he had won another when the French Parliament had voted overwhelmingly to abolish the death penalty. La Guillotine, his old enemy, was finally defeated. She would now be relegated to the museum. And when that vote was over, he had walked over to Victor Hugo's seat in the Senate. He placed his hand on the commemorative plaque and he thought, it is done. And then he walked out into another Parisian morning. This time... It was a beautiful day. Catherine Nixie on Robert Badinter, who's died aged 95. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Chris Impey and Jack Gill. Our deputy editor is John Joe Devlin, and our sound engineer is Will Rowe. Our senior producers are Rory Galloway and Sarah Larniuk. Our senior creative producer is William Warren. Our producers are Maggie Kadifa and Benji Guy, and our assistant producer is Henrietta McFarlane, with extra production help this week from Peter Granitz and Kevin Kaners. We'll all see you back here tomorrow for The Weekend Intelligence. As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity.